Welcome one last time to this year's Good Friends Christmas Reading. Most of our tales are told, but there is still time for one or two more. Of course, we couldn't tell these tales without our cast, so please welcome... Scott Dolwood? Sarah Dovey? Rena Henzi? Brian Murphy? T.A. Newman? Mike Percival Maxwell? Sue Savage? And Graham Wormsley? And now... Without further ado, delay, lollygagging, shilly-shallying, or procrastination, let us hear these final stories as we present Told After Supper by Jerome K. Jerome The Blue Chamber Before I tell you my own story, the story of what happened in the Blue Chamber, I would wish to preface it with A Personal Explanation I feel a good deal of hesitation about telling you this story of my own. You see, it is not a story like the other stories that I have been telling you, or rather that Teddy Biffles, Mr. Coombs, and my uncle have been telling you. It is a true story. It is not a story told by a person sitting round a fire on Christmas Eve, drinking whiskey punch. It is a record of events that actually happened. Indeed, it is not a story at all in the commonly accepted meaning of the word. It is a report. It is, I feel, almost out of place in a book of this kind. It is more suitable to a biography or an English history. There is another thing that makes it difficult for me to tell you this story, and that is that it is all about myself. In telling you this story, I shall have to keep on talking about myself. And talking about ourselves is what we modern-day authors have a strong objection to doing. If we literary men of the new school have one praiseworthy yearning more ever-present to our minds than another, it is the yearning never to appear in the slightest degree egotistical. I myself, so I am told, carry this coyness, this shrinking reticence concerning anything connected with my own personality almost too far. And people grumble at me because of it. People come to me and say, Well now, why don't you talk about yourself a bit? That's what we want to read about. Tell us something about yourself. But I have always replied, No. It is not that I do not think the subject an interesting one. I cannot myself conceive of any topic more likely to prove fascinating to the world as a whole, or at all events to the cultured portion of it. But I will not do it, on principle. It is inartistic, and it sets a bad example to the younger men. Other writers, a few of them, do it, I know, but I will not, not as a rule. Under ordinary circumstances, therefore, I should not tell you the story at all. I should say to myself, No, it is a good story. It is a moral story. It is a strange, weird, enthralling sort of a story— and the public I know would like to hear it, and I should like to tell it to them. But it is all about myself, about what I said, and what I saw, and what I did, and I cannot do it. My retiring, anti-egotistical nature will not permit me to talk about myself in this way. But the circumstances surrounding this story are not ordinary, and there are reasons prompting me, in spite of my modesty, to rather welcome the opportunity of relating it. As I stated at the beginning, there has been unpleasantness in our family over this party of ours, and as regards myself in particular, 
and my share in the events I am now about to set forth, gross injustice has been done me. As a means of replacing my character, in its proper light, of dispelling the clouds of calumny and misconception with which it has been darkened, I feel that my best course is to give a simple, dignified narration of the plain facts, and allow the unprejudiced to judge for themselves. My chief object, I candidly confess, is to clear myself from unjust aspersion. Spurred by this motive, and I think it an honorable and a right motive, I find I am enabled to overcome my usual repugnance to talking about myself, and can thus tell my own story. As soon as my uncle had finished his story, I rose up and said that I would sleep in the blue chamber that very night. My uncle sprang up at once. Never! You shall not put yourself in this deadly peril. Besides, the bed is not made. Never mind the bed, I replied. I have lived in furnished apartments for gentlemen, and have been accustomed to sleep on beds that have never been made from one year's end to the other. Do not thwart me in my resolve. I am young, and have had a clear conscience now for over a month. The spirits will not harm me. I may even do them some little good, and induce them to be quiet and go away. Besides, I should like to see the show. Saying which, I sat down again. How Mr. Coombs came to be in my chair instead of at the other side of the room where he had been all evening, and why he never offered to apologise when I sat right down on top of him, and why young Biffle should have tried to palm himself off on me as my Uncle John and induced me, under that erroneous impression, to shake him by the hand for nearly three minutes and tell him that I had always regarded him as a father, are matters that to this day I have never been able to fully understand. They tried to dissuade me from what they termed my foolhardy enterprise, but I remained firm and claimed my privilege. I was the guest. The guest always sleeps in the haunted chamber on Christmas Eve. It is his perquisite. They said that if I put it on that footing, they had of course no answer, and they lighted a candle for me and accompanied me upstairs in a body. Whether elevated by the feeling that I was doing a noble action, or animated by a mere general consciousness of rectitude, is not for me to say. But I went upstairs that night with a remarkable buoyancy. It was as much as I could do to stop at the landing when I came to it. I felt I wanted to go on up to the roof. But with the help of the banisters, I restrained my ambition, wished them all good night, and went in and shut the door. Things began to go wrong with me from the very first. The candle tumbled out of the candlestick before my hand was off the lock. It kept on tumbling out of the candlestick, and every time I picked it up and put it in, it tumbled out again. I never saw such a slippery candle. I gave up attempting to use the candlestick at last and carried the candle about in my hand, and even then it would not keep upright. So I got wild and threw it out of the window and undressed and went to bed in the dark. I did not go to sleep. I did not feel sleepy at all. I lay on my back, looking up at the ceiling and thinking of things. I wish I could remember some of the ideas that came to me as I lay there, because they were so amusing. I laughed at them myself till the bed shook. 
I had been lying like this for a half an hour or so and had forgotten all about the ghost when, on casually casting my eyes around the room, I noticed for the first time a singularly contented-looking phantom sitting in the easy chair by the fire, smoking the ghost of a long clay pipe. I fancied for the moment, as most people would under similar circumstances, that I must be dreaming. I sat up and rubbed my eyes. No, it was a ghost, clear enough. I could see the back of the chair through his body. He looked over towards me, took the shadowy pipe from his lips, and nodded. The most surprising part of this whole thing to me was that I did not feel in the least alarmed. If anything, I was rather pleased to see him. It was company. Good evening. It's been a cold day. I said. He said he had not noticed it himself, but dared say I was right. We remained silent for a few seconds, and then I spoke again, wishing to greet him more pleasantly. I believe I have the honor of addressing the ghost of the gentleman who had the accident with the caroler? He smiled and said it was very good of me to remember it. One caroler was not much to boast of, but still every little help. I was somewhat staggered at his answer. I had expected a groan of remorse. The ghost appeared, on the contrary, to be rather conceited over the business. I thought that as he had taken my reference to the caroler so quietly, perhaps he would not be offended if I questioned him about the organ grinder, as I felt curious about that poor boy. Is it true that you had a hand in the death of that Italian peasant lad who came to the town once with a barrel organ that played nothing but scotch airs? He quite fired up. Had a hand in it? Who has dared to pretend that he assisted me? I murdered the youth myself. Nobody helped me. Alone I did it. Show me the man that says I didn't. I calmed him down. I, I assured him that I had never, in my own mind, doubted that he was the real and only assassin. And I went on and asked him what he had done with the body of the cornet player he had killed. To which one may you be alluding? Oh, were there any more then? He smiled at my inquiry and, and gave a little cough. He said he did not like to appear to be boasting, but that counting trombones, there were seven. Dear me, you must have had quite a busy time of it one way and another. He said that perhaps he ought not to be the one to say so, but that really, speaking of ordinary middle society, he thought there were few ghosts who could look back upon a life of more sustained usefulness. He puffed away in silence for a few seconds while I sat watching him. I had never seen a ghost smoking a pipe before that I could remember, and it interested me. I asked him what tobacco he used, and he replied, The ghost of Cut Cavendish, as a rule. He explains that the ghost of all the tobacco that a man smoked in life belonged to him when he became dead. He said he himself had smoked a good deal of cut Cavendish when he was alive, so that he was well supplied with the ghosts of it now. I observed that it was a useful thing to know that, and I made up my mind to smoke as much tobacco as ever I could before I died. I thought I might as well start at once, so I said I would join him in a pipe, and he said, Do, old man. 
I reached over and got out the necessary paraphernalia from my coat pocket and lit up. We grew quite chummy after that, and he told me all his crimes. He said he had lived next door to a young lady who was learning to play the guitar, while a gentleman who practised on the bass viol lived opposite. And he, with fiendish cunning, had introduced these two unsuspecting young people to one another, and had persuaded them to elope with each other against their parents' wishes, and take their musical instruments with them. And they had done so, and before the honeymoon was over, she had broken his head with the bass viol, and he had tried to cram the guitar down her throat, and had injured her for life. My friend said he used to lure muffin men into the passage and then stuff them with their own wares till they burst and died. He said he had quieted 18 that way. Young men and women who recited long and dreary poems at evening parties and callow youths who walked about the streets late at night playing concertinas he used to get together and poison in batches of 10 so as to save expense and park orators and temperance lecturers he used to shut up, six in a small room with a glass of water and a collection box apiece, and let them talk each other to death. It did one good to listen to him. I asked him when he expected the other ghosts, the ghosts of the caroler and the cornet player, and the German bands that Uncle John had mentioned. He smiled and said they would never come again any of them. Why, isn't it true, then, that they meet you here on Christmas Eve for a row? He replied that it was true. Every Christmas Eve for 25 years had he and they fought in that room, but they would never trouble him nor anybody else again. One by one had he laid them out, spoiled and utterly useless for all haunting purposes. He had finished off the last German band ghost that very evening, just before I came upstairs, and had thrown what was left of it through the slit between the window sashes. He said it would never be worth calling a ghost again. I, I suppose you will still come yourself as usual. They would be sorry to miss you, I know. Oh, I don't know. There's nothing much to come for now. Unless you are going to be here. I'll come if you will sleep here next Christmas Eve. I've taken a liking to you. You don't fly off screeching when you see a party and your hair doesn't stand on end. You've no idea how sick I am of seeing people's hair standing on end. He said it irritated him. Just then, a slight noise reached us from the yard below and he started and turned deathly black. I cried out, springing towards him. You are ill. Tell me the best thing to do for you. Shall I drink some brandy and give you the ghost of it? He remained silent, listening intently for a moment. Then he gave a sigh of relief, and the shade came back to his cheek. Oh, it's all right. I was afraid it was the cock. Oh, it's too early for that. Why, it's only the middle of the night. Oh, that doesn't make any difference to these cursed chickens. They would just as soon crow in the middle of the night as at any other time sooner if they thought it would spoil a chap's evening out. I believe they do it on purpose. 
He said a friend of his, the ghost of a man who had killed a water rate collector, used to haunt a house in Longacre, where they kept fowls in the cellar, and every time a policeman went by and flashed his bullseye down the grating, the old cock there would fancy it was the sun, and started crowing like mad, when, of course, the poor ghost had to dissolve. And it would, in consequence, get back home sometimes as early as one o'clock in the morning, swearing fearfully because it had only been out for an hour. I agreed that it had seemed very unfair. Oh, it's an absurd arrangement altogether. I can't imagine what our old man could have been thinking when he made it. As I've said to him over and over again, have a fixed time and let everybody stick to it. Say four o'clock in summer and six in winter. Then one would know what one was about. How do you manage when there isn't any cock handy? He was on the point of replying, when again he started and listened. This time I distinctly heard Mr. Bowles' cock next door crow twice. There you are. That's the sort of thing we have to put up with. What is the time? As he rose and reached for his hat, I looked at my watch and found it was half past three. I thought as much. I'll wring that blessed bird's neck if I get hold of it. Getting out of bed, I suggested joining him. If you can wait half a minute, I'll go a bit of the way with you. It's very good of you, but it seems unkind to drag you out. Oh, not at all. I shall like a walk. I partially dressed myself and took my umbrella, and he put his arm through mine, and we went out together. Just by the gate, we met Jones, one of the local constables, and I always feel affable at Christmas time. I greeted him. Good night, Jones. Good night, sir. The man's answer was a little gruff, I thought. May I ask what you're a-doing of? I responded with a wave of my umbrella. Oh, it's all right. I'm just seeing my friend part of the way home. What friend? Oh. Ah, of course. I forgot. He's invisible to you. He is the ghost of the gentleman that killed the caroler. I'm just going to the corner with him. Ah. I don't think I would if I was you, sir. If you take my advice, you'll say goodbye to your friend here and go back indoors. Perhaps you are not aware that you are walking about with nothing on but a nightshirt and a pair of boots and an opera hat. Where's your trousers? I did not like the man's manner at all. Jones, I don't wish to have to report you, but it seems to me you've been drinking. My trousers are where a man's trousers ought to be. On his legs. I distinctly remember putting them on. Well, you haven't got them on now. I beg your pardon. I tell you I have. I think I ought to know. I think so too, but you evidently don't. Now... You come along indoors with me, and don't let's have any more of it. Uncle John came to the door at this point, having been awaked, I suppose, by the altercation. And at the same moment, Aunt Maria appeared at the window in her nightcap. 
I explained the constable's mistake to them, treating the matter as lightly as I could, so as not to get the man into trouble, and I turned for confirmation to the ghost. He was gone. He had left me without a word, without even saying good-bye. It struck me as so unkind, his having gone off in that way, that I burst into tears, and Uncle John came out and led me back into the house. On reaching my room, I discovered that Jones was right. I had not put on my trousers after all. They were still hanging over the bed rail. I suppose, in my anxiety not to keep the ghost waiting, I must have forgotten them. Such are the plain facts of the case, out of which it must, doubtless, to the healthy, charitable mind, appear impossible that calumny could spring. But it has. Persons, I say persons, have professed themselves unable to understand the simple circumstances herein narrated, except in the light of explanations at once misleading and insulting. Slurs have been cast and aspersions made on me by those of my own flesh and blood. But I bear no ill-feeling. I merely, as I have said, set forth this statement for the purpose of clearing my character from injurious suspicion. And so our tales are told. We hope you've enjoyed hearing them as much as we have the telling of them. It only remains to thank you, the listeners, and of course our most excellent readers. Scott Dolwood. Sarah Dovey. Rena Henzi. Brian Murphy. T.A. Newman. Mike Percival Maxwell. Sue Savage. And Graham Wormsley. Good night. And from all of us here at Blasphemous Towers, to all of you there, wherever you are, a very Merry Christmas. Christmas.